Hello, and welcome to Public Intellectual. Just a note that we are now on Patreon, so if you like the show, you can consider donating, and you'll get some bonus episodes and other things. It's patreon.com slash publicintellectual. I published a piece today at The Outline about liberals and artists being complicit in gentrification, and, well, people don't like hearing that. It is, of course, always someone else's fault when a neighborhood suddenly turns bougie and white. It was funny how vitriolic some of the responses have been, because, as one woman put it, artists should always be allowed to pursue any opportunity that arises for them. To which I say, just because you're an artist doesn't mean you're not an asshole. The likelihood is higher, actually. As we move around the world more, there has to be a way for us to understand how to do it with intention and with an ethical awareness. We have to be aware that other people exist and that our actions have repercussions for them. And it's funny how little people like to be reminded of this. We talked about this in a wider sense in the episode about Cosmopolitans with Bruce Robbins, which you can find in our archive if you missed it. But I wanted to talk in specifics. So I asked Natalie Wymore, author of The South Side, to talk about the difference between gentrification and development, the specific situation in Chicago, and how one should participate in a community and in a neighborhood. So when I when I lived in Chicago from about 2003 to 2009, I remember Bronzeville being mentioned as the sort of next the next neighborhood, the next place for people to move into. Um, and you talk about that in your book about it, the expectation of development or gentrification, um, and it never quite took. So I was wondering if you could kind of like uh, set the scene, I guess, and talk about what the neighborhood was like when you moved in and that versus what it was when you left. Bronzeville in general is a, is a neighborhood that has a, has a very good location. It borders the South loop, which is the neighborhood just South of downtown, which was seeing a Renaissance. And then it also bordered Hyde park, which is where the University of Chicago is. A lot of, you know, great housing, schools, grocery stores, entertainment, things like that. And so Bronzeville was sandwiched between these two neighborhoods where there was a lot of activity, not far from Lake Michigan, not far from the expressway, a beautiful housing stock, a lot of graystones, one of the city's grandest boulevards, King Drive runs through it. Um, so the way I always explain is that Bronzeville and uh, was, it was Bronzeville in my grandparents era, the low end in my parents era, and then rechristened Bronzeville, um, when it was time for me to become a homeowner. Um, this was the historic black belt where Gwendolyn Brooks lived, where native sun was set. And after housing segregation, well, well, after the Supreme court ruled that racially restrictive covenants were illegal other neighborhoods opened up for blacks on the south side and then 
the world's largest public housing development got put into Bronzeville. So it was a neighborhood that had been neglected but had all these assets nonetheless. nonetheless. And then you had a lot of middle-class African-American homeowners come in and say, let's reclaim this neighborhood. Let's make it Bronzeville again. And that started in the early 1990s. But there, even though you had, so you, you, what, what, what has happened in Bronzeville does not meet the standard definition of gentrification. You did have public housing that came down. So you had some low income people who were displaced, but they weren't replaced by higher income people. The neighborhood is completely uh, depopulated from where, where it was at its peak. And there still are a lot of low income people who live in the neighborhood. Um, you know, even as a reporter, if I'm looking for public housing residents to interview who lived in the old Ida B. Wells development, I know that I can always find residents in the park. That's the new park that was erected by the old Ida B. Wells because residents come back to that neighborhood. They feel like the park is, is for them, um, even if they don't live on that footprint or even live in the community. So someone like me buys a condo 2008 for $172,000. And, you know, the neighborhood is still struggling with crime, with drug dealing, um, and then foreclosures, and really a lack of investment. And by that point, it had been a couple of decades that Bronzeville was supposed to be making this turn. And it just really, there were improvements, as, as one of my neighbors talked about, who had been there for a long time, he felt that the new neighbors meant that there were new services and new things that were coming. But for the new people, it was like, well, where's the grocery store? Where's the restaurant? Some of the expectations I think were unrealistic, like, oh, where's the artisan cheese shop? And, because there are existing businesses there. Um, but at the same time, when you see higher income earning people in other neighborhoods, you see development come. And so this is why I, I really try to make an analysis on, it's not just class, it's race that plays an issue. And then what happened is that I took a complete bath with my condo, $172,000, three bedrooms, two bathrooms, gated parking. By the time I was trying to leave that property, it was assessed at $45,000. I could buy a car for that. And what's the line between gentrification and development, because it seems like, you know, a sort of outside gentrifier, gentrification activist um, would look at the the moving in of, of a Whole Foods or a Starbucks as being proof that everything is going to shit. Whereas as a resident, you know, you kind of maybe want, <laughs> you want services, you, you want a Whole Foods or a Starbucks because now you have coffee and you have groceries. Right. I, I think the thing that people miss, development and gentrification are not the same thing. And low-income people, working people, middle-class people all want some of the same things. Like they want to be able to go to a place to to shop. You know, low-income low people like nice things too. Um, we're not talking about moving in a pottery barn into Bronzeville. But it took more than, uh, the, the first grocery store, new grocery store to come into the neighborhood wasn't until a couple of years ago, or actually, I think it was last year, 
that that it that it opened. And it's a it's a regional chain. It's not something that's high end. They hire locally. Um, you know, it's a grocery store that um, it has some nice appointments to it. But you can also get basic things. You know, there there are there are spaces in communities in which people at different incomes can all frequent. And I and I gave the example too of my local liquor store. You know, what I've seen in Chicago is, you know, new people move in and then the the culture of the neighborhood starts to change. Well, we don't want that. that, that there was a, a liquor store in West Town, not far from where you used to live. And the new neighbor said, well, we don't want, we only want craft beer to be sold here because I guess old style means crime. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. And it was just such a snotty elitist thing. Um, like, what do you think you're keeping out? Like, why are you trying? You can't change the composition of a like, neighborhoods can change organically. But when you start saying we don't want this mm-hmm. and I didn't see those type of things happening in Bronzeville. And so the my, my neighborhood liquor store owner decided to embrace those changes. He started stocking Perrier. He started stocking Sophia Coppola wines, but he also sells Nicki Minaj Moscato. <laughs> Um, you know, it was a place that everybody, I could go in there and feel comfortable getting a bottle of wine to drink at home or to drink with friends and it wouldn't be like syrupy sweet, <laughs> um, you know, limited selection. Um, but, you know, I also appreciate that my other neighbors who like the kind of wine that I don't like can, can go there too. So it, development doesn't have to be an either or type of thing. Right. And you and you talk about in in your book about how food issues are are um, bound up in race in the sense that when a neighborhood becomes more white, um, it's more likely to have a grocery store and so on. Um, I mean, part of that is, um, you know, racism and sort of uh, predatory developers and and so on. But also part of that is, I think, um, the reluctance of, uh, you know, it's it's kind of a cliche at this point to talk about uh, you should shop local and support independent business and and so on and so forth. Um, Except for it's so vitally true that a neighborhood does die if there's not that level of engagement. Um, and so white people might move into Bronzeville, but then, you know, still drive however many miles in order to go to their preferred grocery store and so on. Yeah. Um, this is why I was admiring the work of the Bronzeville Retail Initiative, because they weren't trying to get rid of any existing businesses. They wanted the businesses that were there to do better by the community. Because then you, the, the other racial tension you have there um, is a lot of non-Black-owned businesses and Black neighborhoods in which sometimes African-Americans feel those business owners or employees don't treat the community well. Um, and there can be this, sometimes it can look like these businesses are disrespecting the community, like they don't care about their facades, they're not cleaning up, they're just there to make their money and then to leave. And so how do you engage those businesses to do better? But also there's so much vacant land in a place like Bronzeville, how do you bring in new businesses? 
So supporting the ones that are there, um, you know, regardless of race, and then finding ways to to bring in new businesses. Um, and and there are people in the community who are very committed to uplifting the neighborhood, like Gallery Gouchard. Um, they were in the northern part of Bronzeville, and then they moved to 47th Street. And then the owners decided to live in new artist housing that was above their gallery. So these things take intentionality. Um, it takes people who are willing to put the work into a community. One thing that I've learned as being a reporter is that no neighborhood just rests on its laurels. Like every neighborhood has people working to try to make it better. Even the most affluent neighborhoods, they just aren't affluent because there are moneyed people that are there. You know, you have neighborhood associations, you have chambers of commerce, you have people who are who are working. Um, and so I, I do think when newcomers were coming to Bronzeville, the higher income earning people, I think they were sort of expecting this magical transformation that maybe we see sometimes when white people come into neighborhoods and that didn't happen in in Bronzeville. Um, I think it's a good thing that it remained mixed income, but it is striking that you had all these households that could afford more expensive housing that hi had higher median incomes and there was a fight to get some basic services like businesses like a coffee house, uh, much less a grocery store. And uh, you kind of refer to yourself um, in the book as, as a um, as a so-called gentrifier um, in the sense that you were coming in from uh, outside of the neighborhood with the expectation that the neighborhood would, um, would develop. Um, well, what made you... So you had, you know, the issue with the condo, but then what made you leave the neighborhood entirely? It was really a, a matter of family circumstances. Um, the place was affordable to me. I liked its location. If I hadn't been getting married, I, I, I would have stayed. But the place was not big enough for my husband and I and our blended family. And we moved to Hyde Park, the neighborhood that I, that I mentioned where the University of Chicago is. Um, I didn't, we didn't give up on Bronzeville completely. We were, we both were underwater with our condos. So that limited us in terms of what we could buy. And so we were open to looking for maybe a foreclosure in Bronzeville, something closer to the lake. Um, but it just really turned out home ownership was not the, it, it, it just wasn't the, the right thing for us to do for our family. Uh, and then we just had other considerations as well. Um, my stepdaughter's mom lived in the south suburbs, and so living in Hyde Park meant that we were off a direct train line and we could put them on the train and not have to always drive them back to the south suburbs. So there was some practicality involved, and we also liked Hyde Park. We liked that it was walkable. We liked that there were businesses. Um, and so since we weren't buying, um, we, we couldn't afford to, to, to buy in Hyde Park, even if we hadn't been, uh, you know, screwed <laughs> with, with, with our respective condos. And so we just decided, you know what, let's live in the best neighborhood for us at this, at this time. And that was Hyde Park. Um, as I was uh, reading your book, I was thinking about the difference between um, 
Bronzeville and Pilsen because they were both when I was there being touted as the as the next thing. And Pilsen did sort of um, become developed um, slash gentrified. Um, but I was sort of interested in I was looking at this um, uh, this choose Chicago uh, sort of um, this website where it describes all the different neighborhoods to help you decide where to move. And it was interesting to me that in the description of Bronzeville, one of the first uh, descriptions it uses is historically black neighborhood, whereas Pilsen it's halfway through the description before they even mention that it's a predominantly or was predominantly Latino. Um, and I was wondering if that sort of plays a part in the uh, development. I mean, like you say, we have these associations with, um, or Chicago and zoo with Pilsen with like margaritas and tacos, which is a very different sort of image from historically black neighborhoods, which are talked about in Chicago media and other media as being these, you know, um, as Chirac and, and so on. Yeah. You know, I'm, I don't have a problem. I a problem with the to Chicago referring to Bronzeville as historic black neighborhood, because it is like, it has a huge place, not only in this city, but also in this country with the great migration, the black arts movement, um, you know, all, all sorts of, you know, the helping to build black America through economics and through arts and through politics. I think it's an erasure to describe Pilsen without mentioning um, the Mexican and Mexican American aspect higher up. The only, I mean, the other thing that I, so what, what's, what does happen in Chicago is you don't find, and, and some other places in the country, when we see, when we look at racial transitions of neighborhoods historically, like we don't see neighborhoods that were black that then turned to white. It's always the opposite. And so Pilsen has been a changing neighborhood as well because it was originally a Bohemian neighborhood. So it was always an immigrant. You know, maybe it's more accurate to describe it as a historically immigrant neighborhood because it was a Czech neighborhood, and then they moved away, and then it became a Latino neighborhood. Um, but I think Pilsen is seen as this hipster artist enclave, and it. And while that is part of it, I don't think that you should erase, um, you know, the great small businesses that are there, the people who are there, um, the art that is there. I mean, it still is a a vibrant community outside of um, you know, the gentrifiers. I was just in Pilsen on Sunday at the National Museum of Mexican Art for their Day of the Dead celebration. And someone, you know, told me like, this is, this really feels like Mexico. Like this, the tradition of building the, of, of having the altars. So yeah, you know, we, we shouldn't, neighborhoods can change, but we shouldn't erase erase their identity even if they're evolving or even if they're changing yeah it seems like there is a kind of preparation for gentrification that that happens in the way that we kind of talk about places in the sense of like trying to give it a sense that it has nothing there at the moment um right 
And so it, you can sort of free, be free to build anything you want there. Yes. Like in the way that Detroit, like all the sort of ruined porn photographs that yeah. were distributed sort yeah. of got it ready for what it is now. And how Bushwick is, was talked about, even in the New York Times, as being apocalyptic um, in the sense of, yeah, there's just, there's nothing there. Feel free to, feel free to do whatever you want there. Yeah, the, the, these neighborhoods are dead. We can, we can come in. And, you know, even if a neighborhood, let's just say for argument, it does look apocalyptic. I mean, I would never use that type of language. But people still live there. Like, it's not, these neighborhoods are never empty even if we see vacancy or things that we would consider lacking and too often black and brown neighborhoods are looked at just through the lens of of being deficits and not having any assets yeah i mean so i mean you know you're a a journalist so you're hyper aware of the way that um uh, Chicago is portrayed in the media. Um, do you think it's getting better? I don't know if better is the word, but in the way that we're, we're talking about chi- uh, Chicago at the moment. Um, I mean, obviously no, Donald Trump right. is tweeting about how right. uh, they're going to send in the National Guard or anything, but on the media level, is it getting any better? There's some great journalism that's out there, but I mm, I don't know if... If better, I, I think that we were seeing the peak of some of this negative coverage because of Barack Obama mm-hmm. being president and being from here. But I do think that Donald Trump is keeping that narrative. I mean, if you have the president of the United States saying that a neighborhood is like hell where black people live. That, that certainly is not not helping. And I look at media as something broader than what the news coverage is. Like he is in the media saying that. He's using media to perpetuate that, that narrative. And, you know, when you talk to people who are visiting here, maybe come to move here, I mean, their loved ones, people they know are like, oh, my gosh, you're going to Chicago. So I think that the negativity is very much there. I had a friend tell me his son wouldn't come to University of Chicago for undergrad because he was afraid he was going to get shot. Yeah, it's a really um, pernicious um, image that Chicago has developed. Um, And... I mean, obviously, Rahm Emanuel is um, a fucking nightmare. But um, as far as local politics go, are these issues with um, gentrification and and development, are they um, reaching a point where uh, it's being seriously considered or... You know, I, whenever I, I sort of hear about these issues now in, in the wider media, it's always Rahm Emanuel closing schools or something like that. Um, but uh, is it sort of reaching a critical mass in local media or politics? You know, I, I think it depends on the neighborhood that you live in. In the neighborhoods that I cover, you know, mostly black Southside neighborhoods, gentrification is not the issue because, well, the data isn't suggesting it. But also, these neighborhoods are fighting off so many other things, like coming out of the economic crisis, unemployment, foreclosures, 
um, a housing market that hasn't stabilized the way it has in other neighborhoods. So really the story is the disparities and the inequality that we see in the city. I do think we're talking about it more. The Metropolitan Planning Council did this huge report about the cost of segregation, what it is costing this entire region in terms of jobs and wages and billions of dollars, and that it's not just, it's everyone suffers, it's not just black neighborhoods. Now the story in Pilsen or Logan Square is gonna be different. Like they are fighting gentrification off in a way that it's just not an issue in the neighborhoods that, that, that I cover. But in general, we're also seeing in the city a shrinking middle class. Like we, you know, these, it, it's, I, I actually think sometimes the focus becomes too narrow on gentrification in that it becomes a misused word. Someone sees a white person walking a dog, someone sees, um, you know, a coffee house coming and thinking that it's not for the existing people in the neighborhood, even though the existing people are still there. So I'm, I'm in no ways um, dismissing gentrification because there is development that isn't smart that, that's going on. But what we see is downtown gleaming or certain neighborhoods gleaming and other neighborhoods left behind. And I, I think that that's the issue that needs to be talked about more, quite frankly. Yeah, I live in Kansas City now, and a lot of it, a lot of the city is um, filled with vacant storefronts, and most of the city is a food desert, and um, it certainly worsens sort of um, the farther east you get, um, which are traditionally um, black neighborhoods and low-income neighborhoods. Um, But there seems to be a conversation happening about how do we keep Kansas City as it sort of crawls toward recovery from becoming Detroit, where um, you're sort of having an influx of suburbanites, but also where out-of-state investors and developers are t- are draining all the money out of the city. Um, so yeah, I was, I was relating a lot to your book in the sense of like, well, what's, what's going to happen here and how do we, how do we actually do something um, to develop rather than, yeah, rather than sort of gentrify or prepare for gentrification. Yeah, and you know, the thing about when there are vacancies, that means that you don't have to displace people because you really could, like there should be room for everyone. You know, all these neighborhoods that have experienced depopulation, uh, you're not talking about bringing development into places where there's overcrowding. So I, I think that there are opportunities in which people can stay because you have vacancy. Uh, I, this is when, you know, I, I wouldn't lay everything on elected officials, but they're the ones who vote on licenses and zoning changes and permits and that sort of thing. But I think they take their cues from people who are organized. Um, you know, in Chicago, their neighborhoods are looking into creating large-scale housing co-ops or housing land trusts. Um, you know, community benefits agreements can be a tool in which you're, you know, holding a developer accountable, Um, you know, making sure that there's, if new developments are coming in, that there's some set-asides for affordable housing, especially if that developer is getting some sort of city assistance. I think there are lots of models to look at around the country 
as to what's working and to what's not working. I look at DC as a cautionary tale on, you know, so many things that, that went wrong and, and pushing people out. Um, but I, I, I think the premise should not be completely adversarial to development. I think that neighbors should say, should have a voice in saying what, I mean, people want development. You know, I've never heard anyone say, well, you know what, I, I just want to keep keep these things, these these empty lots. The fear is that they aren't being listened to. And so when communities start organizing and putting together coalitions and saying, you know, this is what our, this is what our community wants or, you know, developer, you want to come here, you know, what, what kind of jobs are you going to offer? What kind of affordable housing? I, I think communities can make demands. And I was really impressed. I think it was uh, the Chicago Sun-Times that had a front page article about um, about the Am- uh, Chicago's Amazon offer um, and how that money could be used to provide um, affordable childcare for every everybody in the city. Um, and I was amazed that that was on the front cover. But I was so I was so pleased to see it um, that these issues of um, that there's pushback against the sort of uh, corporate culture and, yeah, and, um, and that came from organizers. That wasn't the Sun Times just saying we don't want this. But people, you know, a, a lot of times. There, there. I will say the mayor has. It's a low bar, but the the mayor has done more economic development in black neighborhoods than Mayor Daley did. But it's still crumbs. When you look at um, the type of package that they're looking that they're, they're putting together for Amazon, it's like you know this little two million dollars that's going to this neighborhood. That's that's really nothing in the grand scheme if we're talking about, you know, more than a billion dollars in subsidies. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you wrote this line in uh, reference to Chicago's educational system, which is um, Chicago isn't even exploring big ideas. Um but it seems relevant to kind of everything. I do feel like there is a, a sort of like a new groundswell of big ideas coming from the bottom, like the um, subsidized childcare idea uh, and and so on. Um, but it does seem like the people in power are still incredibly resistant to, to any of it. Um, so I guess just as like a kind of... Um, final thought I have a very sort of anarchic mode that I go into of just like we'll just get rid of get rid of everything burn everything down um (laughs) like the white house everything um but surely there's a more kind of reasonable uh approach to take to that yeah you know I think that people in communities have really good ideas about what they want their community to look like and I think if the city listens to those voices more, um, I, I think if we are just there are there Chicago has money, Chicago has land. There's opportunity to be creative. That's not to say that there aren't challenges. You know, you can't um, make people do development. Some of the large scale development that would be needed. Um, but we, well, we also have to 
remember is deindustrialization hit places like Chicago and hit black and Latino communities decades ago. And so when I hear now about the, you know, so-called white working class as if other races aren't part of the working class, it makes me, it reminds me that these communities have lost the, like no one's asking for the steel mills to come back in Chicago. Like people have accepted that those are gone. Um, and so what kind of innovation, um, and I think this is like a, an American problem too, like what are we going to make next? Because we're moving so much into a service sector. Um, but if Amazon is, you know, seriously looking at Chicago, then I, I, I think it, it can't be in the downtown perimeter. Um, we see too many of these incentives going into downtown and we're creating gated communities. Um, you know, gated, maybe not physically gated, but mentally gated communities in places like River North and the West Loop. And so we've got to find a way to share those resources. And if you're going to go all the way out for Amazon, <laughs> then it should go where the old steel mill was. Or that should be a, you know, a, 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 a consideration because the jobs that were lost here have not been replaced in decades. And we'd like to send a thanks to some of our Patreon supporters, Morgan Smalley, Jesse Honeycutt, Claire Foster, and Anna Elizabeth. Again, if you'd like to join them, the address is patreon.com slash public intellectual. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.